Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. It would be an understatement to say that my guest today is an academic. He's a heavyweight in the field of economics and finance and has had professorship roles in some of the most prestigious education establishments across the globe. He currently resides in Lausanne, Switzerland, where he's the chief economist and head of operations at the IMD World Competitiveness Centre. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. In today's ever-changing climate, agility and flexibility are essential to maintain, grow and understand in an uncertain world. Whatever challenges your organisation is facing, we can help maximise opportunity while minimising risk, both today and for the future. Future success means being connected to customers, to market dynamics and digital signals, to employees, to channel and business partners, and aligning across the front, middle and back offices. We'll help you to align, to serve the customers better and deliver greater return on investment. With deep sector insight and the latest thinking, KBMG Connected Enterprise provides a sustainable, risk-optimized route from strategy through execution with the tools, methods, frameworks, and solutions your organization needs to succeed in today's turbulent world. KBMG Connected Enterprise can offer you an insight-driven, digitally-enabled roadmap to efficiency and agility that delivers sustainable growth to your organization today and tomorrow. Start your digital transformation journey now with KPMG Connected Enterprise. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Axia is a leading private cloud platform in the Atlassian and Matimos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. De Vere, Switzerland, part of the De Vere Group, is one of the world's leaders in personal financial planning, from investments, life assurance and protection, to education planning, retirement and succession planning. De Vere, Switzerland has the expertise to provide for your needs. And with its ever-growing number of fintech apps, you can monitor your investments in real time, trade them, transfer and exchange money, even buy and sell cryptocurrencies. De Vere, Switzerland provide you with the best digital financial solutions combined with personal financial advice. See devere-switzerland.ch Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Christos Kabalis is the Chief Economist and Head of Operations at the IMD World Competitiveness Centre. He's also an adjunct professor of economics at competitiveness at IMD. He joined IMD in 2015 from Albert Graduate Business School at the American College of Greece, where he was an Associate Professor of Economics and Finance. Prior to Alba, he was the Executive Director of the International Centre for Finance at Yale School of Management. He spent six years as the Lecturer of Economics at Yale University, where he also served as the Dean of Jonathan Edwards College. Christos taught at the University of California at Santa Barbara and at the University of North Carolina, Keenan Flagger Business School, where he was a Visiting Associate Professor. 
A research fellow at the International Centre for Finance at the Yale School of Management, his work focuses on issues relating to mergers, the interplay between competition and specialisation in venture capital firms and competitiveness in general. He has had many publications, examples of which are in the Review of Finance Studies, Journal of Law and Economics, and Journal of Banking and Finance. Christos has been awarded grants by the BSI Gamma Foundation and the Sloan Foundation for his research. He's also the recipient of the inaugural Jamie Fernandez de Arau's Award in Corporate Finance. Among his degrees, Christoph holds a PhD in Economics. A plethora of articles to his name on a wide range of topics to include globalization, microeconomics, banking and finance, merger and acquisitions, law, to name a few. One in particular, and a recent one which we will talk about in the course of this discussion, it was an article written together with Jose Caballero called The Hidden Impact of COVID-19. So it's my pleasure and absolute honour to welcome Christos to Heads Talk. Hello Christos and many thanks for being with us today. Hello Elaine, it is my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm so excited um, with this um, discussion today and I want to dive in and talk about the recent article, The Hidden Impact of COVID-19, before we talk about your work in IMD and in particular the, the World Competitiveness Centre Initiative. I read this article with interest and for my listeners, for my listeners, um, you will find a link to the article in the episode description um, after the recording. Um, a section of the article I took note of and want you to elaborate on it. It regards the unofficial bodies, for want of a better phrase, taking on the responsibility of official bodies and the unforeseen impact that will have going forward. First, the extract from the article, and I quote, I'm reading from your article here, right. The potential effect of organized crime groups acting as providers of public services may be one of undetected impacts of COVID-19. Authorities may lose a fair degree of legitimacy within the communities in which gangs have substituted them during the pandemic. Otherwise put, elected officials' lack of ability to provide support and solutions to a crisis and to protect communities has led to a legitimacy vacuum. It is thus likely that in some segments of society, the level of trust in authorities and, more problematically, in democratic institutions in general, will show signs of decline. What changes do you foresee? And are these structures temporary, or as you say, this will be a lasting legacy of COVID-19? And what about the rest of the world, Europe, for example? We're starting to see a lot of distrust and blame, power vacuums and unwillingness to adhere to rules, misinformation spreading a lot faster than official lines with regards to COVID-19. Um, Christos, is this the beginning of something? Um, it is definitely the beginning of something, even though we have seen similar situations in the past. Every time that we have a, a, a crisis, a, a substantial recession, what happens usually is existing um, inequalities are, are augmented. And when these are augmented, uh, somehow they need to be addressed. They need to be um, helped by the society. Uh, so in areas where there are strong welfare states or in the areas where there are even informal institutions that provide this help, 
as soon as the, the, the budget and the assets that these institutions have start diminishing, there is a great um, um, opportunity for uh, uh, havoc to take place. So I was thinking with my colleague Jose Caballero, how we go from a crisis that started as a, a health crisis became an economic crisis. Now it's even bigger health crisis. Uh, and viewing what are the implications of that to something additional, which is what happens with the increased inequalities that we observe in different uh, countries. Mm. And what we uh, identified is that in the areas where a social state breaks down, and there are not uh, strong relationships either within the community or within the society to help the more devastated segments of the population, then there is a, a gap that can be actually uh, occupied by fringe groups. Mm -hmm. And these fringe groups essentially will provide an initial benefit, either food or some kind of safety or some kind of uh, security. Mm -hmm. or uh, advice and uh, in return in the future they will demand um, loyalty in whatever their objectives are. Mm -hmm. So we have seen this uh, issue in different countries all over the world. In Europe you mentioned we have seen it in, in Italy a little bit earlier in the decade. We saw, we saw it in our, my own home country Greece where uh, polarizing extreme right-wing uh, neo-Nazi groups um, um, became quite uh, sizable in the Greek political scene. Um, and uh, this is exactly what uh, takes place. Now you asked a series of questions and I'm sure that we can, we can go one after the other, but where do we go from here? Yes. So uh, the, the issue is what do governments can do in, in, in this particular situation? What governments can do when they see, for instance, um, um, groups in Japan um, distributing free supplies to, to, to members of their groups or when we see for instance in Palermo in Italy uh, when uh, um, you know fringe groups are providing food uh, for help and so on and so forth and the answer is uh, I think uh, very interesting and, and difficult. It may sound simple, but as you can imagine, it's difficult. What can governments do? Well, in the first place, they have to be transparent. Transparency enhances credibility mm -hmm. and, and uh, enhances the understanding of where exactly we are and where we go. Mm -hmm. The government also should be agile, should be flexible, should realize what the issue at hand is and should try to address it fast. Mm -hmm. And of course, with whatever means the government decides to address it, uh, it has to be effective. So these three elements are very, very important um, for a government to be um, uh, successful. Mm -hmm. Do we see examples of that sort? In fact, we do. Um, for instance, um, the Republic of Korea, um, Iceland, Taiwan was praised for their transparency, for the way that they cope with the COVID uh, crisis. Um, very recently, we saw in New Zealand, Prime Minister Ardern 
was re-elected and many political pundits actually pointed out that a major reason for the substantial win of her party was precisely the way that she handled um, the COVID-19. And as you recall, it was completely transparent, very much into the point, tremendously, um, tremendously important the communication that she used with the citizens of New Zealand yes, yes. to become one part in order to address this issue. And we saw similar things in, in, in areas where one, you know, may think that uh, could not have been accepted that easily, as for instance in Argentina and Uruguay, uh, in which governments immediately jump in and they try to help the more economically vulnerable uh, parts of the society, either by, um, either by, uh, removing the, the payments of rents at the time, or uh, uh, bringing forward food programs that alleviated the needs. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that the, the, the success of Jacinda Hardin, which you mentioned, was the language that she used when she talked about, we have a team of five million people, the, the inclusive language that she used and the transparency that you, you talked about that she, she's shown. To continue with this question, um, you talk about distrust in institutions, um, can lead to one of the subtler impacts of COVID-19. Let's, let's speculate for argument's sake. Um, could it cause permanent irrevocable damage to democracies? And, and am I exaggerating or, or being an alarmist if I say perhaps we're at the beginnings of a new era of governing in the, the democratic world, um, a modification, however slight, of what we define as a democratic country? Can you give us examples, um, Christos? Well, we discussed before about New Zealand and, and, and the amazing work that the Prime Minister did to convey uh, both the issues with COVID-19 and her and her, her administration's plans to address it. And in doing so, essentially, the, the main point that she was trying to do is she was trying to build trust in the institution of government, in the institutions of health authorities, in the institutions of hospitals, all these are institutions for the society. And, uh, and therefore, she was working as a government, which government changes, um, to enhance the importance of institutions of the state, which remain. Uh, if we start having distrust in institutions, the credibility of these entities go down. And of course, then, as we move forward, the state becomes weaker. Uh, I, I think we are observing right now uh, exactly what's going on in the United States, where essentially there is a major distrust, distrust in many different institutions. It started with distrust towards uh, CDC and the appropriate um, suggestions that they had in order to try to combat combat uh, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, it follows now with a major distrust over uh, different uh, elected members on doing their job. It, it, and, it, and the outcome is tremendous polarization. And this polarization is not going to go away in one day when the whole when the new administration comes in January. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but, but the new administration will have a tremendously difficult task to, in many ways, build the, rebuild this trust on the institutions of the country. Sure. Um, and, and so as not to alarm my listeners, um, you do end your article quite heavily on, on what you've just talked about in terms of the transparency and the importance of the presence of um, um, institutions for political stability. Again, a very, very interesting article. I think I read it two or three times because I found it so fascinating. So I urge my listeners to, to have a read and comment on it where possible. Um, okay, sh shall we move on? Please do. Okay, um, let's, let's go into IMD in the World Competitiveness Centre. You are the Chief Economist, as mentioned at the beginning, of the IMD World Competitiveness Centre. It's recently celebrated 30 years since its inception. Um, I suppose there's nothing bigger than countries competing with each other. For my listeners, what is the WCC? What do you rank and what is the frequency of the rankings? The, uh, yes, uh, thank you. The World Competitiveness Centre actually is one of the centres at the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we um, rank different economies, 63 to be precise, um, mainly middle and high income economies mm -hmm. with respect to competitiveness. And we produce these rankings because there are more than one. We, we create three rankings. We produce them annually. A very important issue is what do we exactly define as competitiveness? Mm. And competitiveness is the ability of an economy to create an environment within which the private sector will be able to produce um, sustainable value-added um, services and goods. Mm. And uh, in doing so, by increasing uh, the, the, the value for the country, uh, essentially what's going on is that it increases the prosperity of its citizens. So competitiveness is a, a, a tool that can be used by governments in order to enhance the prosperity of the citizens of the economy. Mm. So, um, you, digital competitiveness is one of the measurements or one of the rankings you do. Um, what, is, what is being measured exactly with digital competitiveness of a country? Digital competitiveness actually tries to capture the capacity and the readiness of the 63 economies to, uh, to adapt and explore the digital technologies that are present right now, uh, because with these digital uh, technologies, we realize an economic and social transformation. Mm. And to do that, uh, we basically rely on three factors. Uh, knowledge, which captures the intangible infrastructure um, that is necessary for uh, learning and discovering mm -hmm. uh, the benefits of technology. Mm -hmm. The second factor is technology, mm -hmm. which essentially um, quantifies the landscape of developing the digital technology. So it tries to quantify the regulatory uh, framework or the, the capital availability in a particular economy. And final, finally, uh, the third factor is future readiness something that we find a very fascinating factor because in essence 
future readiness tries to examine how prepared an economy is to assume all this digital transformation. And the way that we try to measure that is by, in some respect, trying to see how flexible individuals in the economy are in order to adapt the existing technologies and use them. Mm -hmm. And also how flexible, how agile, um, the business sector is in order, again, to adapt and use uh, these technologies, the modern technology. And finally, how these technologies, all the IT framework has been able to be integrated in the daily lives of the citizens and businesses. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's, I think that's pretty comprehensive. Um, I'll just throw this additional question to it. Um, you may not have an answer to it, but it'd be interesting to, to get your viewpoint on it. So, which technologies do you think, more than others, will forge the creation of perhaps a new ranking or a new category to be measured? Um, this, is a, this is a very interesting question. Um, I, I, undoubtedly, uh, more specific questions about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, when we are able to basically use them and find ways to quantify um, things related to artificial intelligence will be included as additional uh, criteria. I also think that um, in many ways, we are riding a wave where the technology advances so rapidly uh, the only thing that we do is actually trying to take advantage of whatever is produced. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, technology and, and um, digital technology has both benefits and costs. And sometimes, at least until very recently, uh, we were not uh, that keen in capturing this trade-off. Uh, so, for instance, um, we realize uh, in the recent time that it's unbelievable to have a technology like the uh, GPS and it gives you such an amazing amount of um, security and safety because you start to go somewhere and you know where you're going and even if you are lost, and some of us are very, very difficult to find their ways around. You know for sure that you will arrive eventually to the place that you want to go. But at the same time, we realize that there is a trade-off. In order to have this tremendous benefit, you have to forego some of your privacy. Um, the same is true with issues about safety and uh, face recognition techniques, for instance. How willing are we as societies to accept these trade-offs and where do we want to go? So criteria that we will capture these trade-offs, I think will be um, important as well. Yes, that's interesting. I think, I think, I can't remember the line, but it's something about, um, oh yes, that's it. Those that give up their liberty for security deserves neither. I think it's something like that. Okay, Elaine, it's a very, I, I think that it's a very important uh, issue uh, that in some ways uh, Europe is a region that tries to address that um, in, in different ways, tries to see exactly what's going on with ownership of, this, of for instance, of the assets of the digital technologies, uh, data, uh, who owns what, and mm -hmm. uh, 
these are important components in the discussion that we will be having. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, let's look at, you know, we talked about the measurements um, that you do. Let's look at interdependencies within countries. Um, for example, the European Union. Are the rankings perhaps skewed if a relationship bring about a rise or decline in competitiveness by dint of their associations. What I mean by this is, we all know about Brexit and it will finally happen at the end of the year. Will this drastically affect the UK standing in the rankings going forward in a positive or negative way? And please tell me your thoughts on this. Uh, it is very important for sure. Um, and uh, f first of all, speaking about the European Union, we do not measure blocks of countries. So we do not measure, um, you know, the countries uh, of uh, North America with, we, who are related with NAFTA. We don't make a specific uh, block measure for that. Or for the European Union, we do not measure uh, differently the EU um, countries, the EU zone versus the European Union uh, countries and so on and so forth. So in that respect, there is not really uh, skewness in the data. Mm -hmm. Undoubtedly, uh, the relationships that different countries have uh, find their ways into uh, what we measure. In order to produce, just to give to the audience uh, a, a little bit of a perspective, in order to produce the ranking of the 63 economies, the, the, the complete ranking, we use around uh, 340 criteria. Uh, some of them are hard data, uh, trade, unemployment numbers, and so on and so forth. Some of them are perceptions of uh, what people think. Things related to trade, of course, are changing depending on uh, the agreements that different countries have. And if you belong in the European Union throughout the past, of course, there was a change in the trade uh, figures. But there is not something specific that we account for that. Now, how will the UK um, exit from the EU uh, will be affecting these rankings. Mm. In some ways, we saw, I spoke about perceptions. As you can imagine, the perceptions have already accounted for the possibility of UK going out of the market in the last four years, in, in fact, since 2016. And therefore, they are already reflected in the ranking of UK, and we saw UK actually uh, going a little bit down and a little bit up again and a little bit down. So um, this aspect has been uh, taken into consideration. Now, how the final chapter is going to be played out, I, I, th I, think, I think right now we are in the most um, uh, stressful uh, point because we are exactly in the end. And in fact, if we had this discussion maybe a month later, we would have known whether the UK um, managed to have an agreement with EU or, um, you know, it, it follows the Brexit uh, strategy without any agreement with EU. And of course, things surrounding um, this exit are also very important. Um, you know, a, a lot of discussion was taking place while we had a uh, an administration in the United States that essentially uh, it was a little bit adversarial with the European Union. 
now we will have a new administration which seems at least uh, in principle to be much more collaborative. United Kingdom was trying to play actually a middle entity between EU, EU and United States. Will this be a strategy now? I, I, I really don't know. And, you know, the uncertainty now is, is very, very high, but everything will depend on what is going to happen in the next few months. Um, uh, let's move on. Um, what country would you say is very competitive in education, investing in the human capital? Because, you know, you, I think you talked about one of the factors that you rely on is knowledge, but quite poor or ranked low in converting the education into a, a productive and competitive entity in the economy. And why is that? Um, so I would, we measure education in different ways. Uh, we try to capture, um, for instance, how much, uh, uh, what part of GDP goes to education. But we also measure the reflection and perceptions of uh, managers on the output of education, how, for instance, prepared students from universities are, whether the curricula in the high school and in the universities are compatible with the needs of the economy, the competitive needs of an economy. So we have a broad range of different criteria that we measure education. I would say specifically with your question, I will concentrate and I will think that if we think about, um, if we think about which countries maybe have a very high percentage of their GDP towards education and they don't perform that well or as good in the outcome of mm -hmm. the education, I would say is, is South Africa mm -hmm. is one. It's basically um, from the countries that we study, they have the highest um, percentage of GDP towards education. And I will also say Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, education, even initializing different reforms, if the reforms start from the primary school, we should wait for about a substantial amount of time to see the outcome of these reforms, because if the reforms start with uh, uh, young people in the age of 10 and 12, these people are not going to join the labor force and the society in general until 20 years later. So it, it always takes a little bit of time to, to see the rewards of education. But nevertheless, I think balancing um, the, the, the funds that we're providing and balancing what exactly comes out is, one, is a very, very important, we think at the center, is a very important policy component mm -hmm. for uh, the different governments. I, I think that's very interesting. And I'd be interested to know the opposite. What country would you say is the opposite to that? That's not sort of extremely competitive on the, on the educational side, but very competitive in, in the economy side of things. You know, education is such a fundamental component for a country to be prepared, for a country to be ready, ready for a country to be productive and efficiency, that I cannot think on the top of my head of any country that the opposite happens. Yeah. Now, now it's just to slightly uh, alter the question that you gave me. If we are discussing about uh, maybe not efficient outcomes in education, for instance, um, uh, instances where 
we are producing a, a lot of people in a, in a particular discipline that we may not want to. Then there are, there are several examples. There are several examples, um, you know, Latin America, for instance, comes in mind. And also my own home country, Greece, mm -hmm. where, for instance, there is a very large number of lawyers being uh, graduating every year, while it is not clear whether there is such a tremendous need for lawyers uh, currently. So th there is a tremendous fine line that one uh, governmental entities should try to use in order to adjust uh, these expectations and especially what are the curricula uh, that are taught in the different um, uh, segments of education. Yes. No, thanks for modifying the end bit of that um, question because that sort of gave us um, a very interesting piece of um, data there. Um, one, one assumes a, a partnership with government and corporation is imperative in order to meet some of the sustainable requirements, sustainability requirements, I should say, um, that, as outlined by the UN. What other countrywide needs um, cannot be met? without the collaboration and commitment of the two government and corporations and and um, has this affected the rankings of countries as a result um the presence of a public private partnership mm. is affecting the rankings in the sense that this is something that we ask executives about how successful these are and therefore we take them into consideration these answers are taken into considerations and the, the, the higher the number and the efficiency of these partnerships, the higher the ranking that uh, these countries are receiving. Um, uh, I agree totally with you, Elaine, that, that we, are, we are getting in a position now that more and more we realize that we need this private-public uh, collaboration in order to co-create solutions for the, the, the future. And of course, yes, almost all the sustainable development uh, goals by UN need this kind of um, um, collaboration. Essentially, if we think about it, what, what does a government uh, provide? The government can play either a regulatory role uh, providing the landscape within which the private sector can actually um, flourish by using their entrepreneurial skills, but also they can be really, they can be uh, co-investors and co-researchers and co-producers. And in th these areas, in some ways, um, the areas that come in mind are especially now healthcare, and we see that very, very clearly. Um, education, uh, where we see uh, the, the, the importance in some economies, and this is something that we measure, of how close a communication exists between academic research centers and uh, pri the private sector entities, enterprises, which they can actually commercialize uh, the research that the academic centers are producing. And most of these academic centers are public entities. There are private, of course, uh, some and they're, they're very good ones, but there are 
many uh, that they are public and therefore this is a collaboration that I think is extremely important. And finally, what, I mean, green energy comes in mind. Um, we're speaking a lot about electronic cars and so on and so forth, but a major issue is where can these electric cars recharge their batteries? Uh, right now, Tesla has its own technology, uh, Renault has its own technology and so on and so forth. But these, in some respect, minimize the ability of a consumer to actually go around. These are things that a consumer needs to think in advance, where maybe a, a collaboration yes. with a public entity where the regulatory framework can come and we can have one standard and therefore um, there will be many different parts along a long way that you can uh, to recharge your battery may be mm -hmm. a more efficient and better solution. Um, what countries have you noticed um, quite rising in the ranks and perhaps one we should all watch and see their progress. Um, what are the reasons for this and what are they doing right and by the same vein what countries declining and why? First who's rising? Um, that's a good question. Well, I, I, the immediate country that comes in mind is, of course, China. And uh, uh, China is, uh, uh, has managed in the recent years to actually uh, increase the middle class uh, in the country substantially. And therefore, they become sophisticated users, consumers, and developers of digital technology. So uh, this is definitely in our radar screen. And then we have countries like uh, within uh, UAE um, that it is uh, that, that very very recently we saw, for instance, a, a tremendous step forward with a space program that they have, and where essentially what they try to do is uh, they they uh, they have very very good private education. They need to enhance the the public part of the education as well, but the private education essentially um, focuses a lot on quality and uh, basically boosts all these research and development uh, aspects. Mm -hmm. And another country that I will think is um, from Europe, maybe Slovenia, in fact, that, mm -hmm. that uh, in the last five years, they have managed to uh, climb up the ranking um, in, in a slow path, but maybe much more careful. And they do that by taking correct steps in terms of increasing the efficiency of both the private and the public sector. And declining countries? Mm. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I will think about uh, Japan. Um, Japan is a, is a country that uh, we surprisingly see um, see declining. Um, they have not involved yes. in quickly enough. It, uh, let me also remind to, the to our listeners as well that our ranking uh, by definition is uh, a comparative 
measurement. Mm -hmm. right? So you have one ranking and we say, we say that the position of a particular country, United States, for instance, in digital is number one compared to the 63 countries that we uh, study. And how these positions are changing, actually, they can be changing because a particular country uses new policies, new, is much more innovative, becomes more efficient and much more productive. But it can also change because the surrounding countries are much more productive, much more efficient. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you see uh, uh, oneself uh, going down the, the, the yeah. steps of the ranking. So Japan, I think, um, it seems that has not evolved quickly enough. I think, yes, you're right. I think Japan is an interesting um, country. And, and there is a school of thought that they peaked um, kind of in the 80s and the 90s in terms of technology, electronics, gadgetry, and have missed their chance of being a digital powerhouse. Um, by what you've said, you agree. So what have they missed? What should they have done to, to remain very high in the rankings? And what lessons should be learned by other countries, if there's any lessons to be learned at all? In a very general framework, Elaine, indeed, 80s and 90s, uh, Japan peaked, but it was a path that they, they followed since 70s. I mean, their, their business model was to uh, be extremely efficient with respect to um, costs and operational timing and, and so on and so forth. So in the 80s and 90s, essentially, uh, they wrapped the efficiency and productivity aspects of the economy. And then in some respect, but even in the 70s, 80s and 90s, what, they were, what Japan was tremendously capable of doing was to basically get an already existing technology and produce it better. So they were enhancing the quality and they were making it cheaper. But it's not that they were um, that much innovative. So when we moved in this new wave in technologies where innovation and creativity and uh, create the first mover advantage, I think Japan found itself a little bit lacking. So this, so this is the one. Why this is the case, I don't know. Uh, let's not forget that, there, that Japan has three other characteristics which are very, very important. First of all, it has an aging workforce. If you see the, uh, the people who are the percentage of the population which is above the age of 65 is close to 28%. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember the number just because it, it made such a significant uh, impression on me. Um, the second thing is that, you know, the lack of foreign language skills, which makes, um, you know, collaboration and effective uh, uh, co-creation a little bit difficult with other researchers around the world with different languages. And finally, it is a pretty closed economy. Uh, there are barriers to entry. It's very difficult to, to enter Japan. And, and therefore, all these spillovers um, are very, very difficult to be realized. I would, I would think that these are the case. I would, I would think that this is, this is the important issues. That's, that's, that's very comprehensive. Thank you for that, um, Chris. It's sort of very enlightening and informative. Um, let's stick with the um, 
the competitiveness rankings. Um, what are the practical takeaways and impacts of these measurements and rankings for countries? Um, does this have a, actually have a practical impact in the real world? Are countries making an attempt to better themselves with this in mind, or is it a, a nice to have, especially if you're, you're ranked in the top 10 or so? Second, um, do various countries discuss with you, your institution, their rankings, and perhaps on a consultative basis, you, your institution, help uh, and advise them on how to, for instance, bridge the gap between their competitiveness and their neighboring competitors? Yes, fascinating questions. Uh, we struggle with the first question ourselves. So what do the countries take? For us, what they take is a tool. is a tool to use to realize what are their strengths, what are the areas that can improve upon, and what are their opportunities. And, and we urge the countries to, and governments to see these rankings as such. Having said that, there are many people, um, not only in governments, but in, in media and the private sector that view the ranking more as a, as a, a Premier League championship. You know? So uh, the first team wins the championship and everybody else pretty much loses. And, and this is definitely not the case because here it is not that uh, the ranking basically um, presents to you an absolute figure that you strive for. What you strive for as, as a government is to, to increase the prosperity of the people. And you choose different strategies to accomplish that. You are restricted. You are restricted by your assets, you are restricted by your own material, you are restricted by your size. And these are things that you cannot change. Uh, yet, we take them into consideration. Uh, we take into consideration how many people, uh, what is the population of a country. Of course, we adjust it uh, and we adjust for size. And, but nevertheless, all these are things that a government has in their toolbox that they need to choose the best strategy. So we hope that our rankings are used as tools in order to benchmark their performance and equally important to compare uh, their strengths, their weaknesses, finding out what are, uh, if you want, best practices that are used from other economies in order, or similar economies in order to um, reach certain goals. And all the governments do not have the same goals. So, uh, you know, it is, it, it's very, very important to keep that in mind. Our ranking is very, very holistic. So this is what we hope the countries are seeing in the rankings that we give. Um, do uh, different entities discuss uh, with us? Absolutely, yes. We, we come in contact with different uh, public servants. We come in contact with private um, entities as well. But essentially, what they want to find is mainly um, the measures that we use, uh, the data that we use, what are exactly the, the methodology uh, that we use. And of course, as you can imagine, every ranking is not a panacea. We capture a very, very specific thing, which is 
how a country, an economy, can create sustainable value for its citizens. And we do that by examining the whole issue from the private sector's point of view. So what we do is we get the data and we go then to the private sector and we send a pretty lengthy questionnaire to uh, hundreds to thousands of people and we are asking them issues about um, the legal system, mm -hmm. about how um, effective barriers of entry in a particular domain are. We are asking them things about the culture of the economy. We're asking them things about their own behavior as managers. Um, uh, what are their values? What are their attitudes? Uh, how do they cope with um, accountability? How do they cope with transparency? Whether the corporate governance rules are effective. Um, so, and we, we take all these things and we put them together. So they're asking us about that. They question sometimes why we use a particular uh, ranking. Mm -hmm. and, and this is the types of conversation that we have. Now, your second question was also, um, yes, whether we discuss with them. And we definitely do. Yes. Yes, yes. And, but you discuss with them, but not employed on a consultative basis. No, we are not employed with respect to rankings. Of course, we do research where we deep dive in our data. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, um, we provide to them different strategies that they can use okay. if they want to improve a certain aspect. For instance, uh, what exactly is going on with the exports and imports or uh, issues related to um, um, what you said before, education, um, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. okay. But this do not translate into um, increasing, uh, changing the rankings. Okay, okay. As you can imagine. And, and, and the reason for that is very simple. Most of the things that we work with are medium or long-term um, changes. So how can a, a, an economy, a whole economy can become more efficient? how um, the labor uh, force of a particular economy can become more productive, which is a mixture of technology and the appropriate legal system. Mm -hmm. Even changing parameters of the legal system, as you very well know, do not bring results immediately. In fact, the, 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 the results come quite uh, later in time. We have had discussions, for instance, with uh, um, uh, public uh, servants who, uh, you know, said we don't have a very high improvement in areas of, uh, for instance, corporate governance, despite the fact that we changed the law last year. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and the reason was simple. I mean, it takes a little bit of time to realize all these changes that come out of a, of a law change. Unless, of course, if the law that changes is about taxes. And then we see maybe certain changes being materialized. Be quicker than... Much easier, yes. Um, yes. Okay, let's, um, let's dive into education.
education, um, academia curricula are continuously refined to keep ahead of educational developments. However, in some countries, at a slower pace than others, um, do you foresee that subjects like, you know, we talked about it earlier, AI or um, others, other areas, for instance, um, digital development, um, blockchain, for instance, will be con compulsory and part and parcel of the curriculum in school because it will be um, part and parcel of everyday life somewhere into the future. Will it be taught like, say, physics and math? Um, what say you, Christos? I, I definitely think that we will see changes in curricula. I think you're absolutely right to say that uh, in some countries it will be faster than others. But eventually certain aspects of uh, uh, the new technologies will find themselves even in primary school. Uh, I, I think and I hope, to be honest. Uh, let's take an example. You said an example, uh, coding. I think it's a, it's a very good example. And I had recently a question about that. I, I think it's of paramount importance to include coding in our educational curricula. Uh, and I think in England, they already do that, if I'm not mistaken, in the United Kingdom uh, and in some other countries. But it is very important for several reasons. First of all, precisely because of the technology, I think the whole educational system moves away from uh, strict memorization, which used to be, um, at least in the primary and secondary education, the important thing of the past. And we try to actually make uh, students uh, more acute of differences, having critical mind, being able to think, draw similarities, draw differences. Coding can help in many different ways because essentially coding is you have a certain objective that you would like to accomplish a certain task and then you use uh, a logical uh, sequence of commands to accomplish this task well uh, this includes several things first of all it includes uh, you structure your thought because it's not that you can go without having a particular path uh, to the end point that you want. In order to reach that, you have to have very logical implications. So the rational part of this structure is very, very keen. Um, you can reach a task by following 50 steps, or you can reach a task by following 10 steps. Obviously, that 10 steps are much more efficient. So you learn about issues of efficiency. Essentially, you learn about preservation of effort and preservation of power and so on and so forth, and the importance of saving, saving steps. And finally, um, as is usually happening with foreign languages, you realize that all this structure has a particular, all this architecture has a particular beauty. So it enhances the aspects of creativity as, as well. And it's not surprising now, but designers, uh, um, people that have a particular, uh, you know, uh, um, superiority in the arts and they can realize how things are going together and so on and so forth. So I think that this is a very, very important aspect. Now, um, I've been looking forward to you answering this question. Um, it's a fun final question, uh, Christos. 
Um, your background is very much academia. You have been uh, a professor in a few institutions. You currently lecture in Lausanne, Switzerland, in one of the, if not the most prestigious business management school, namely IMD. You have lectured, been a professor, a student, adjunct professor, visiting professor, observer even, in many others. Some um, we've listed in the introduction. Um, I'm putting you on the spot here. Which one is the most competitive on A, embracing innovation, B, welcoming free thinking and free thinkers and doers, I should say, and C, implementing new ways of learning and teaching? First A, which one would you say is top on embracing innovation? Oh, Elaine. The truth, the truth. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a fun question. We will need another podcast to discuss. <laughs> I, I'll hold you to that. I'll hold you to that. We'll have another podcast at some point. But can you, can you summary, give us a summary of that? So I, I'll tell you, uh, and uh, I, I, will be, I will be open uh, at the same time. It's not that I try to be diplomatic, but indeed I was very fortunate. I spent my time in, in ivory towers uh, in both sides of the Atlantic. And, and uh, I taught mainly uh, undergraduate students in the United States and graduate students, but I taught only graduate students uh, here in Europe. Uh, I would think that, uh, and very importantly, let's not forget that the institutions that I worked are also very different with respect to size. Uh, I've taught in very large institutions in the United States and rather small in, in Europe. And uh, so embracing innovation, I, definitely, United States can embrace innovation, um, but it is very important to, to note that if you are in a small institution, like I am currently at IMD, which is a, a smaller institution, it is much easier to actually embrace innovation because you don't have all the necessary steps that you need in order to safeguard the life of an institution when you are in a really large university. So if, if I am in a university in the United States, which has a, a, a tremendous law school and a, a, a sizable medical school and architectural school and a business school and, and a huge and very important uh, undergraduate body, in addition with all the other schools about uh, environmental studies, about mathematics, about um, applied physics and so on and so forth. In fact, making sure that there is a certain thread that connects all these things is a very, very tiring um, administrative process. While if you are in a small institution and you're fortunate to have a leader, because this is also a very, very important aspect, to have a, a leader who is uh, forward looking, who is the leader herself embracing innovation or uh, who uh, see herself welcomes free thinking and uh, she doesn't feel um, insecure if uh, somebody claims exactly the opposite of what she says as a leader. I, th I, think, I think these are the institutions that flourish. And, 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 and again, without trying to be diplomatic. I have been very fortunate in the places that I have been. I had these kind of leaders. Uh, mm -hmm. So embracing innovation. Um, in the United States, uh, there were several innovative aspects 
that were embraced in the, in the undergraduate level, yet I would say that the rate of change at IMB where we transformed uh, a pedagogy uh, paradigm that we have, which is quite unique uh, from the principal way of uh, discussing face-to-face to actually holding uh, similar capacities uh, through the internet and having the same impact in the end of the day, uh, I think, I think it's, it's, it's quite amazing. Okay, um, you, you touched upon welcoming free thinkers and doers. So which one? Are you, without trying to be diplomatic as, as you put it. <laughs> I think the easier would be for me to just choose each institution. You have four things here. I think it be more than four. That is extremely diplomatic. I can speak very, very well with everybody, and I'm not going to get a phone call from my dean from <laughs> or I'm not going to get an email from just, the just president of IMT uh, next week. But, but, but really, I, I, I think that um, free thinking doers is of paramount importance. Again, I will make a very simple distinction for our listeners. If you are, if you, if you are working in a university with a, an undergraduate, uh, very important undergraduate uh, school, um, this is a time that you try to push the limits of the thinking and creativity of the participants. If you are in a business school, it is very, very specific what you are asked to do. And uh, of course, within the realm of what you are trying to, to teach, uh, competitiveness, um, uh, corporate finance, and so on and so forth, you push the limits. Uh, you are bringing all the new technologies. You speak about fintech and blockchain. Uh, but in addition, uh, the area that you can expand the area that you can bring more seemingly unrelated issues under the same bed um, is, is much easier in an undergraduate school. All right. Okay. So I think if people look at your, your CV, then they will kind of know which one you're talking about in that space. So, mm-hmm. that, so the last one, and quite brief, if you could, um, implementing new ways of learning and teaching. Which one's that? I would say IMD, and I will say also here ALBA, and, and it's very, very, it's, it's very straightforward, the reason. Um, at IMD, we, we get feedback immediately. We measure our impact uh, several months after different sessions, mm-hmm. and um, um, we can adjust uh, very fast uh, issues, the comments that we get, we can make them, we can turn them into uh, strengths in the sessions that we teach. And sometimes these comments come even after uh, the session, the first session that you have. So, you know, you may have a three day program, and after the very first session, the program director can get a certain feedback that can very easily be accommodated and distributed to the rest of the faculty that uh, participate in the program and they immediately take it into consideration. It's, it's so 
uh, fast the way that we implement ways for teaching and learning. Well, I, th I think it's fitting that you end on IMD with this question. Um, no more, so you're free. You can breathe now. I, 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 I was worried that you would ask me another I don't want you to have any more any phone calls after this. So um, it's been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure, um, Christos Kabolis. Many thanks for your time and insight. Likewise. I thank you. It was it was a tremendous pleasure. Uh, very nice talking with you, Elaine. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.